climate finance, climate reparations, climate justice, climate refugees, consensus. These are marketing terms. It's not about climate. It's about money and control. No country, no state, no city, no company should have a climate policy. My guest today is David Siegel. Great to be here. I've been such a fan of your show and have been planning this for a long time. So glad to have a chance to finally do it. Uh, I was, I went to Stanford in the 1980s and I was one of the first employees at Pixar. And that was back in 1986. That's, that's the first year the company started. Uh, so then I, I left after a little while and started my own businesses in Silicon Valley. And I had, I, I designed some typefaces that you probably use and know, and I had a little time to do some research and I, I was reading like I was reading environmental books in the late 80s. And I was really impressed by Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance. Do you remember that? I do. I did not read that one, though. I read everything. You know, I read The Silent Spring. I read the whole I just read the whole canon of everything. And in 1993, I wrote this book. Yeah. Uh, which was my little self-published project that I published at, at actually at Stanford and uh, and sold locally through local bookstores. And this book was about three things. It was about overpopulation because I knew Paul Ehrlich and I was reading everything he wrote, wrote and I was having lunch with him. So I was fully, fully steeped in Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. It was about climate change because I was so impressed with uh, with Al Gore's book. <laughs> I was, you know, I was like 28 years old. <laughs> and then and then it was about diet and why everybody should be vegan, you know. And yeah, so yeah, so I was wrong on all three counts. 100% of everything in this book is wrong. Uh, and it took me a while to figure that out. <laughs> But then when it did, I, instead of resisting it, I leaned into it and got really back into it. In about 2015, I started, I spent a year on climate and, uh, and I've been writing about it and you've seen some of my work and, and making videos ever since. So, so I thought I'd do a little uh, presentation today on the politics and the kind of the situation where we are now in climate. I'm not big on shared delusions. I try to figure things out for myself. And in this talk, I'm going to show what I think are the big problems we have in the climate debate. Two things before we start, Tom. First, I've never been paid by anyone for any of my work on climate. It costs me because, like other skeptics, we are unfairly judged by people who are not critical thinkers. I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I think most politicians are just in it for themselves, and we're generally poorly governed and overregulated. I believe free markets allocate resources best. And second, I don't read my slides, so you'll have to pay attention if you want to get all of this. These are the founders of the climate industrial complex. Don't think of these people as communists or evil. Think of them as brilliant entrepreneurs. Over the last four decades, they created a $2 trillion industry. Do they really think CO2 controlled the temperature of the Earth? I'm not sure it matters because let's see how it played out. Remember, these people were underdogs in the 1980s. And how did they do? Well, pretty well, it turns out. It takes a team to build an industry this large, especially one built on stories, vacation photos, and bad science. 
Several of them really made a killing, so it's really working. The team learned from the threat of nuclear war, acid rain, and ozone that they could manipulate the press by proclaiming a future danger based on a random variable that happened to be trending up at that particular time. They discovered that governments and media organizations were eager to support their agenda because scaring people is a good way to control them and make money. So the scrappy entrepreneurs found a source of funding. By having conferences, commissioning reports, and showing scary graphs, they got more and more money. And so this new industry, designed as a political movement to save humanity, grew. And grew. And grew. And grew. It became more theatrical. The hotels got bigger. There were workshops on climate empathy, climate finance, climate law, climate refugees, reparations, and racial justice. And the food was delicious. Anyone who thinks this is ironic doesn't get it. This is exactly how it's supposed to work. This is what success looks like. All this is based on a foundation of tribalism and pre-existing beliefs. From the grassroots concepts of Gaia, overpopulation, Silent Spring, and the Club of Rome, they got tribe members promoted into positions of power until they set the norms and wrote the laws. By building on top of tribalism and identity, they have ruled out debate, discussion, and alternative viewpoints. People have a built-in defense mechanism that triggers whenever we tell them that the Earth is not being overexploited by humans. They are not scientists. They draw on direct experience, social media, and childhood memories. Because there are now so many climate journalists, the news is more and more focused on sounding the alarm. And remember that when norms become laws, compliance is compulsory. I ask people over and over, how do you know CO2 is destroying the planet? They say the IPC has done that work already. I ask for one published paper that shows we are causing the climate to change. I have asked hundreds of people for one single paper. I've never gotten a response. And why? Because it doesn't matter. Because by virtue of endless repetition, the science is settled. I've asked many people to meet with me on Zoom and just record a session to tell me how they came to their views. How did they come to believe that humans were changing the climate? And no one is willing to tell me that. Here's a paper from NASA. The researchers looked at the Earth's energy balance from a new satellite that Al Gore helped get the funding for. And they conclude, our research supports the idea that clouds and albedo, which ultimately determine the shortwave radiation, are variables of the utmost importance for current climate change in agreement with previous research about the changes in stratocumulus energy or energy imbalance in the last four decades, for example. This paper does not mention CO2, and it's also not available on NASA's website. I've collected and summarized 177 peer-reviewed papers now that go against the common narrative that CO2 causes climate change. There's a link to that page in the description of this video. So this explains why celebrities, billionaires, CEOs, and many politicians won't question the assumptions, because they would because if they did, they would never eat a low-carb lunch in Beverly Hills again. Even science journalists and video creators have no choice but to reinforce the consensus view and signal to everyone that they are not a traitor. 
Even Noam Chomsky, who wrote the book on manufacturing consent, says climate change is the defining issue of human history. Republicans are evil and oil companies are destroying the world. This is a mass formation. Now, here's the ratio of papers published on natural climate topics versus anthropogenic climate change. Since 2010, there are now almost two papers assuming humans cause climate change in their abstracts for every one without the human element. Many of these papers don't mention climate change further in the body of the paper. It's just in the abstract to help get funding. This is the climate industrial complex. The federal funding is real. After a pause during the Trump administration and COVID, federal funding should soon exceed $40 billion a year, most of that going to government agencies and universities. Just to put that in perspective, Tom, that comes to about $320 for every tax-paying adult in the United States. So we're all now paying about a dollar a day for research to continue promoting a fake crisis. To many people, this graph looks like a scary story of humans causing warming because that's what they want to see. What you and I see is natural variants and El Ninos and a gentle warming trend since coming out of the Little Ice Age. Motivated reasoning is very stubborn. If you came to a conclusion without evidence, then no amount of evidence is going to change your mind. Instead, showing people disconfirming evidence is seen as an attack on them personally, which is why they attack back personally. And you and I have been the uh, on the opposing end of many of those. This is an example from the comments I get on my blog. It's mostly name-calling and appeals to authority. Now, I once believed as they do, but I did more homework and learned I was wrong. Rather than defending what was obviously not happening, I changed my view. Most people can't do that. Now that energy is connected to climate, everyone has an incentive to pretend to be concerned and get his piece of the ever-growing climate cake. Here's the AIA website advertising a conference on climate change for architects. Do architects have any idea about climate science? No, of course they don't, but they can smell money a mile away. It's more profitable to be a leader in this new movement and get ahead of your competitors than to be left behind. It's a windfall, a gift for grifters from all walks of life. There's work for marketers, PR agencies, sculptors, painters, bloggers, asset managers, news organizations, YouTube content creators, and the sale of indulgences of all kinds. There are climate venture capital funds. All the big consulting agencies are in on this game because there's so much money available. You see this little box below your content? It's just a random screenshot I took. Is that a public service message? No, that's an ad. It's bought and paid for by the United Nations. YouTube won't allow advertising on content like yours, but they're happy to make money off it by selling space to the UN. To build this machine, you start with fear. Use people's own memories against them. Flood the market with cherry-picked and fake data. Keep making dire predictions. Call people special names. Keep publishing papers based on models. Keep reasserting your credentials. The more they control the narrative, the more they control the money. Two words they use very carefully are science and truth. By redefining these words, they use them to their advantage. If they repeat those words enough, that creates a moat around their project. Now they're just doing narrative management using the golden word crisis. 
Crisis gives people in power more power to make big sweeping changes. A crisis allows money to flow that was stuck before. A crisis that lasts more than 20 years is an industry. Can they keep it going for another 20 years? I think they can. It's not about science, it's about marketing. Look at the weight management market. 10% annual growth rate, supplements 22%. Does any of this work? No. The science comes from the marketing budget. We've had the obesity crisis for 30 years now. Expect even more robust growth in the future. This is the crisis industrial complex and it's huge. Remember this one? Colin Powell told the world Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction to justify going to war in Iraq. This wasn't evidence. This was a theatrical United Nations storytelling exercise that led to a $2 trillion war that killed more than 300,000 people based on a made-up story with fabricated evidence designed to signal to the world that the U.S. is very interested in other people's oil. Once again, an invisible crisis drives U.S. energy policy to extreme outcomes, while a few people profit and many people suffer. This is the norm, not the exception. This is actually my most important slide right here. Eliezer Yudkovsky calls these inadequate equilibria. I call them scams. My younger son calls it organized crime. They're broken systems that persist because they're profitable. All of these scams have thousands of pages of supporting documentation, many PhDs, dozens of peer-reviewed papers, and full consensus. Most of these are 10 and $100 billion industries. Some are in the trillions. They're everywhere because no one has any incentive to stop the party once it gets started. In all cases, if you follow the money, you'll see what's really going on. Out of a world economy of about $100 trillion a year, maybe $30 trillion goes to solve invisible made-up crises that keep powerful people in power and redistribute wealth from the poor to the already wealthy. If you think climate change is the biggest scam on earth, you don't understand the banking system, or education, or religion, government, medicine, lotteries. It's not even in the top 10 money-wise. Once it gets institutionalized, rigorous nonsense is difficult to undo. Energy policy today isn't one of the biggest by dollars, but it is one of the biggest by how many poor people it affects. Energy and climate have nothing to do with each other, but there are powerful interests driving our transition to net zero carbon. I've even heard of transition engineers, whatever that is. And there's only one problem. Bad energy policy leads to energy poverty for billions of people who can't afford expensive intermittent power. The definition of energy policy is when your energy bill constitutes at least 10% of your household budget. In Europe, that's more than 36 million people, around 10% of the population now. In the United States, according to the latest census, about half of American families earning less than $50,000 reduced their spending on food or medicine at least once in the last year to pay their home energy bills, while in 2020, more than 25% could not pay an energy bill. And the solution government bureaucrats have come up with? Price caps on energy. What could possibly go wrong with that? Well, this is what happened in Sri Lanka after years of the president Rajapaska sucking up to the World Bank and EU 
by banning fertilizers and accepting loans and payments for renewable energy. His country had an ESG score of 98 until he was forced to flee for his life. Energy poverty is very real. Woke government officials around the world are adding more police to protect their failed policies and drive up energy prices. This is the Great Reset. This is the direct result of decades of fan meetings in Davos. People think there's an energy trilemma. They think we must make trade-offs between price, reliability, and climate damage of various energy sources. It's not based on any real-world trade-offs today. It's based on models and predictions. It's really like 1984, where the Ministry of Energy is dedicated to destroying our energy infrastructure, and the Ministry of the Environment is dedicated to destroying the environment. In reality, climate and energy have nothing to do with each other. We need reliable, affordable energy, and we need to minimize the impact of real pollutants and environmental damage. It might cost a bit more to clean up the environment and do less damage, but it's also good business practice. That's what makes nuclear power such a strong alternative to fossil fuels. Not the CO2 argument, but the long-term cost-benefit calculation and the big win environmentally. Regardless of what crusaders say, we'll be living with fossil fuels for more than 100 years, and that's fine. We need them. The developing world needs them. China has some of the cleanest coal-powered plants in the world, and they're building one new coal-fired plant every week. There's no need to rush into any big changes. Let markets find the best solutions on their own time without, subsidy, without subsidies and government meddling. And it's far better for the environment. This slide is from an amazing talk by Jesse Osubel. The straight lines show model projections of how much water the U.S. This the straight lines show model projections of how much water the U.S. would use, or they thought they would use, and the pink squares show the actual water use. This is during a period when the U.S. population grew by forty percent. Corn is the leading crop by far. Corn acres are down since the 1920s, despite a 4x increase in yield. During that same time, the population more than doubled. About a third of our corn is fed to cars, as biofuel is a huge part of the worldwide energy scam. This is total agricultural land worldwide, both for grazing and farming. Now look at the United States. Total agricultural land area hasn't changed since 1940. As Jesse Osubel explains, without the folly of biofuels, the world would be past peak farmland now. We probably are anyway, because this only stops at 2017, 2016. And the World Bank wants Africa to not have affordable, reliable energy, even as their total farmland continues to grow. I encourage viewers to pause the video here and spend some time with this chart. It tells a very important story. And as others have noted on your channel, NASA satellites show that CO2 is causing quite a lot of greening, which actually cools the Earth. So we, we could say CO2 is having some effect on climate, possibly. If we're going to make any progress against this machine, we need to understand the Overton window. It shows what's possible politically. The only way to implement policies outside the window is to move the window first so those policies become acceptable. Now, the goal of us skeptics should not, or realists should not be to cast doubt or try to disprove the science. 
That's a waste of time. The goal should be to move the window up toward a smart energy policy. This is where we want the window to be so we can help poor people, the environment, and the economy. Unfortunately, the overturn window is going the other way toward a suicidal energy policy, censorship, accelerating the ESGs, which are the slippery slope to everyone in the developed world having a social credit score like China's. ESGs are based on the concept of the Great Reset brought to us by the same entrepreneurs who brought us the climate crisis. Climate finance, climate reparations, climate justice, climate refugees, consensus, these are marketing terms. It's not about climate. It's about money and control. Those interested in ESGs can come to my site, cuttingthroughthenoise.net, which got me permanently banned from LinkedIn for wanting to help poor people survive the onslaught of the rich. If you remember one thing from this talk, it should be this. No country, no state, no city, no company should have a climate policy. We could already have made huge progress toward net zero poverty, but no, we're incinerating cash, bankrupting developing nations, and forcing billions into energy poverty with wind turbines, solar powers. Uh, we're incinerating cash, bankrupting developing nations, and forcing billions into energy poverty with wind turbines, solar panels, and virtue signaling. Think what we could achieve with $2 trillion a year going toward net zero poverty. Is poverty so insignificant compared to the future predictions of climate models that have been wrong for decades? This is one of the largest scale tragedies of human history, and it would have, and it would have huge benefits for the environment. This is what young people should be protesting about, and yet they are gluing themselves to private jets and museum paintings over CO2. This movement has infrastructure, something we don't have. They're focused on, on public perception, narrative management, and censorship, while we are in the weeds trying to figure out the science. Thanks to you, Tom, those of us who are critical thinkers have a voice and an audience. You're helping improve the world. I want to remind people one thing, that if they are politically conservative, that doesn't make them right either. The Earth's climate is very complex. People on your channel have presented a wide range of views, several of which are going to turn out to be wrong over time. It's best to hold strong opinions loosely. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Lean into it. Learn as much as you can and keep this conversation going. I'll end with this. When a well-packaged web of lies has been sold gradually to the masses over generations, the truth will seem utterly preposterous, and its speaker a raving lunatic. Now, it sounds insane to say that more Arctic warming leads to a cooler average Earth temperature, but that's exactly what I'm going to show in my next video when we talk again. Thank you. I just have a couple of questions if you have a minute or two. Of course. Um, sure. I'm looking at this context box you mentioned uh, that's underneath all my videos pretty much. And yeah. we actually know that the UN is paying for those rather than- I assume, them I assume so because it's a direct link to the United Nations website. Uh, so I'm doing some research on this. I don't have any clear evidence, but it's not just a public service message. It's a link. So I believe that that's traffic, and I believe the UN pays for that traffic. Okay. Then my other question is, you mentioned uh, China has some of the cleanest coal plants. They do. 
I did not know that. Uh, I've heard propaganda saying want, that they're uh, dirty. Yeah. If you want, I will – there's two super clean coal plants in the world. One is in Alabama, I think, and it was recently closed for political reasons. It's an amazing project. I'll send you a link to a video on that. And the second one is in China, and you can barely see any smoke coming out when it's running full blast. And I will, I will send you a link to that, and we'll put that in the description as well. Okay. Uh, but uh, just the generic run-of-the-mill coal plant they're putting up in China, is that pretty clean? Like, I don't know. I, I know they're capable of it and that they, they have plenty of coal and that it, it could just be a signal to show they've got one coal plant that does it, but they obviously know how to do it. Uh, also, they have chronically bad air in places like Beijing, and Beijing is about to get about 10 times bigger so uh, so they may have every bit of an incentive, uh, economic incentive to do it as well. Okay. Uh, any other points you want to make? Uh, this is uh, part one of two, and we're going to have you back on to do part two. Thank you. But uh, before we do that, any other things you want to leave us with right now? Uh, no, I hope I haven't said anything too wrong. Um, you know, I'm always checking and learning and uh, trying to figure out what, uh, you know, what's really going on. Um, it's very hard to ascribe motivation to people, right? It's we don't really know what's in John Kerry's mind and and Al Gore's mind. As far for all we know, they can just really believe it, and they're just talking to people in the echo chamber, and they just don't understand. They haven't spent any time with Dick Lindzen, maybe, right? Or maybe they're willfully aware, and uh, and they, you know, they keep they keep this train going because it's so profitable. I I really don't know. Um, I'm I'm certainly not willing to accuse them of anything, but it sure looks convenient for them. It does. Okay, I think we'll wrap up for now. Thank you very much. That was really densely packed with good stuff, and there's some good clips and quotes in there. So th thanks for all your work. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate yours. Talk to you next time. Talk to you later. All right.